Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. My name is Dave Fletcher, and this is an RD Extra that you're cramming into your ear holes right now. Recently, I did a presentation for CFI Michigan, the Center for Inquiry Michigan, on one of my very favorite subjects, mythology, specifically looking at some of the lessons we can learn from the studying of mythology. Basically, it's a long-form polyatheism segment. So if you like our regular polyatheism segments, hopefully you will also enjoy this. One quick audio note. Near the end of the presentation, I was briefly heckled, and I don't think it will actually come through on the audio for you. Um, But at the tail end of the story of Seth and Horace, my fellow doubtcaster Jeremy Bean yelled out, Best Myth Ever, followed by friend of the show Ed Brayton, who called out Worst Salad Ever, or something to that effect. And let's face it, if you're going to be heckled, being heckled by Jeremy and Ed is kind of the best possible scenario. So that's what you're missing out on in that uh, brief moment at the end of the story of Seth and Horace. So anyway, uh, here it is, my presentation to CFI Michigan on polyatheism. We'll be back in the very near future with a regular episode, which, no spoilers, but it's going to be a real humdinger. Certainly worth the wait. But in the meantime, here's this as a little tide-me-over. Enjoy. In his book... The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins, who, according to the CFI rules, must be mentioned at least once in every presentation, he said, We are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further. And while this is absolutely true, it's also true that many of us, even those of us who profess to not believe in any gods, are not really all that well acquainted with the majority of gods we disbelieve in. And while I neither practice nor endorse the belief in any gods, I do feel it's a loss if we don't have at least a passing knowledge of some of the many gods dreamt up throughout history, even if you believe in none of them or hold out for just one or two. And as a side note, if you do believe in just one god, I sincerely hope it is the Incan sun god Inti. His name is considered so sacred that it can only be spoken silently. So his proselytizers at least do so quietly. (laughs) How many of you in this room have read all or portions of the Bible? Okay, keep your hands up. Those are the atheists in the room. (laughs) Well, mostly. Now, I I do highly recommend reading the Bible, um, as Richard Dawkins has said just recently, second mention, just for extra credit. As many of you have found, reading the Bible is a great gateway to atheism. But, 
uh, there are also many important lessons that we can derive from the Bible. For example, don't eat bacon. Don't have gay sex in your wife's bed. Serpents can often be more reliable sources of information than gods. Rub the spit of a transient cult leader in your eyes if you should happen to go blind. That's a helpful one. Genocide is perfectly fine as long as it's for real estate. Slavery is awesome. And women are just plain terrible and kind of icky. Now, I'm not saying these are all good lessons, but they are historically significant ones. And if that's true for the Bible, it's also true for the mythic tales of other cultures throughout the world and throughout history. From Sub-Saharan Africa, the birthplace of humanity, to Mesopotamia, the birthplace of civilization, to China, the birthplace of everything purchased in the United States. There's a myriad of mythological stories that we can look to in order to better understand both ourselves and the world around us. Today, what I'm going to attempt to do is um, to fill you in on some of these other cultures, give you a feel for some of the other gods that are out there. Now, one way that mythology is having a very direct influence on American culture these days is um, actually quite damaging, too. I'm speaking, of course, of those who are trying to introduce mythology into science classes. The argument offered by creationists that evolution is just a theory is, of course, infuriating to those of us who understand the difference between scientific theory and what we mean when we say, I have a theory about how this episode of True Blood is going to end. But the other thing that's very frustrating is when they say we should teach both sides of the debate. Now, first and foremost, there is, of course, no debate within the sciences as to whether or not evolution is true. But the thing that's really infuriating to mythographers, people who study myths, is this idea that there's only two sides to the debate. It isn't a two-sided debate between science and Christian-inspired creationism. There are many, many more theories of how the world came to be. I say, if we introduce one non-scientific theory into the classroom, we should include them all. By the way, my children helped do the pictures for my slideshow today. So um, if you can't see them very well, you're missing out, but you'll manage. It's not really about the slides. Don't just tell our kids that 6,000 years ago, a bearded man formed the world from chaos by speaking into existence. Also tell them that the four-eyed, four-eared Babylonian god Marduk shot an arrow down the throat of his monstrous great-grandmother, split her in half, and used half to build the sky and half to create the earth. Teach our children, fine. Teach them that God said, let there be light. But also teach them 
that the sun god Atum, after emerging from the primordial waters, began to masturbate, swallowed his own seed, as it were, and then sneezed and spat out the god and goddess of moisture and air, respectively. By the way, disclaimer, which probably should have come before the semen spitting section. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in mythology. Uh, so um, those of you who brought small children, that was your mistake. Uh, I'm speaking mostly to my wife. Um, so the, the, there may be a little bit of that. Yeah, and with this crowd, please, you've all heard it. Um, it's fine if you want to teach children that the world was created in seven days, so long as you also teach them. This is a drawing done by my wife, by the way. Uh, as long as you also teach them that the world was created by three brothers tearing apart a giant and using his body to form Midgard, one of the nine realms on the world tree Yggdrasil. If you want to teach that the first man was created from God breathing into a pile of dirt and then a rib was removed to make the first woman, that's fine. But you're also obligated to tell the story of Purusha, the thousand-headed being who was sacrificed and then melted down and various parts of his body were used to make members of the different castes. It's okay if you tell the story of Eve being tempted by the serpent, but you should also mention that the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl and his sometimes evil brother Tezcatlipoca turned themselves into snakes and tore apart a goddess covered with mouths and created the world from her corpse. See, I'm okay with us talking about all of these non-scientific theories in school. It's great. But since in science class they also have to talk about things like covalent bonds and chemistry and physics and all of this other crap, there just isn't enough time to get to the real important stuff, right? So I say we take these stories and put them in a different class, like religion or world history or art history or some class where there actually is a debate. Teach the debate, just teach it in the appropriate place. Now, another instance where modern headlines are being influenced by ancient myth is with the war on women. Sadly, we learn from looking at mythology that the war on women is nothing new. Of course, Eve and Pandora are both responsible for everything evil in the world by eating a piece of fruit or opening a jar, respectively. But then there's also the Japanese creator goddess is and I'm so bad at Japanese, I apologize to anyone in the room who speaks Japanese or is Japanese or cares about language because this is not my best day. Uh, Izanami, close enough, um, Izanami is punished for speaking before being spoken to. You see, she and her brother slash husband are performing their marriage ritual, as you do. Look, when there's no one else around, you have to marry family, okay? 
It's like fundamentalist Mormon cults, okay? Eventually, there's going to be some crossbreeding, okay? So as they're walking around the pole for their marriage ceremony, she greets her husband before he greets her. Her punishment, then, is their first child is a horrible leech monster. So they realize that they screwed up. They do the whole ceremony again, and everything works out well, relatively speaking. She goes on to produce children like a Catholic wife, shooting out all of the islands of Japan, which sounds like a pretty painful labor to me, and a series of different gods. Finally, she's destroyed from the inside out while giving birth to the god of fire. She dies, descends into the underworld of Yomi, where she is now responsible for the death of every human being ever. Women, am I right? Huh? Women be killing people. Uh, next, of course, there is the Greek goddess Hera. We can learn a lot about history and the history of patriarchy by looking at mythology. Many scholars believe that the conquests of Zeus, and there are a lot of conquests of Zeus. To give you an idea, uh, the planet Jupiter is named after the Roman name for Zeus. And Jupiter has how many moons? Any astronomy buffs out there? 20 plus moons, right? And they're all named after one of Zeus's lovers. If they find another 200 moons around Jupiter, they will start to run low on names to give them. Okay? And many uh, mythographers believe that each of these conquests of Zeus represents a different goddess-worshipping culture that the cult of Zeus, which eventually took power in Greece, raped, either literally or figuratively. Now, that may not be true of all of them, but it's almost certainly true with the goddess Hera. She was, at one time, a very powerful, very popular earth goddess, but now is remembered just as the nagging wife of Zeus. And she is almost laughably the goddess of marriage, when you consider that her marriage is one of the worst possible, tells you a little bit about what the Greeks thought of Hera, really putting her in her place. Of course, the same is also true for the Mesopotamian goddess Tiamat, who we now remember as a dragon getting torn in half. She was a popular goddess. But no, these male-dominated cultures come in and go, oh, you love peace. <laughs> we have weapons. We win. Okay. One of the other, probably the most tragic pieces of evidence for the ancient war on women is the story of the Hindu goddess Sita. And it comes to us from the Ramayana, which is one of the most important texts in Hindu mythology. And it's the story of Rama, the great hero, who is considered to be the perfect king, the perfect son, the perfect man, and the perfect husband. Now, Sita gets kidnapped. And this is, this is a fairly large story, so we'll condense it for our purposes here. Sita gets kidnapped. Rama rescues her. And rather than embracing the wife who he almost lost, 
he turns away from her because he's concerned that while she was kidnapped, she may have been raped by her captor. She hasn't. She has remained loyal. She has threatened her captor that she will smite him dead if he even tries to touch her. But Rama can't be sure. So she literally goes through a trial by fire. She walks through flames to prove her purity. So, okay, great. They get back together. They go home. Rama becomes king. As he's sitting on the throne one day, he hears a poor guy, not one of his peers, mind you, but a poor guy, a, a washerman, a guy who does laundry for a living. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but compared to a king, kind of a step down. Okay? Um, he overhears this guy beating his own wife and saying, what do you think I am, Rama, that I'm going to take you back after you've lived in another man's house? So Rama bows to, it's not even peer pressure, right? It's underling pressure. And he casts out his pregnant wife, his wife who is pregnant with his twin sons. He sends her to live out in the wilderness. Out in the wilderness, she gives birth to the two sons. And amazingly and dumbfoundingly, she teaches these children to worship Rama. He is such a great man. We worship him. We sing his praises. This man who has twice accused her of being unfaithful, including casting her out into the wilderness while she was pregnant. But she teaches them to worship him because that's what a good wife does, right? You can tell the ladies appreciate this moral. Well, one day Rama is out hunting in the woods and he hears these two young men singing his praises. He realizes that these are his sons and embraces them, wants to take them home to reign with him. And then he sees his wife, Sita. And he's like, oh, you, yeah, well, um, you know what? I'll take you back if you can prove one more time that you are pure, okay? God forbid the woman that he threw in the gutter happened to, you know, find another man. So Sita, having had enough of this, says, all right, if I am pure, may Mother Earth take me back into her womb. And that's exactly what happens. The Earth opens up and swallows Sita, proving that she has been faithful even to her last breath. This is the story of the perfect husband. The war on women is nothing new. And it's not surprising, really, when you consider that this mentality is still around, given that these are the stories we've been fed for thousands, literally thousands of years. We've been told to fear women and their sexuality. Now, just as we no longer fear that the great wolf skull is going to devour the sun someday, we can probably stop being afraid of women and their vaginas. We can say that word here, right? Vaginas. It's amazing that we're able to do that in a room where I'm telling poop jokes, but in the Michigan House of Representatives, vagina is inappropriate. Why, why don't we all say it just to cleanse the palate? Vagina. Doesn't that feel good? Don't you feel mature now? Good. 
Now, one lesson that we get from a number of different cultures is simply this. Don't piss off the gods. Because when you do, it's going to get nasty. And there is a number of different approaches that the gods use, but the tried and true, the most popular, is, of course, the flood. This is a drawing done by my uh, toddler. I helped. Yeah, she's, she's pretty good. She's, she's good. Now, of course, you're all familiar with the biblical tale of the global flood, where God gets angry at humanity for whatever reason, and he decides to wipe them all out. But before he does, he talks to a 600-year-old man and says, build a giant boat that holds all of the animals in the world. And the 600-year-old man obliges. But did you also know that a very similar story appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where a man named Utnapishtim, favored by the gods, is told to build a boat in order to avoid a flood. And the interesting thing there is that the story of Utnapishtim predates the story of Noah and was likely one of the major sources for the biblical authors. And then, of course, there's the story of Nugwa, the Chinese gourd woman who, when the flood is coming, plants the tooth of a thunder god in the ground. Out from the tooth grows a tree, and from the tree grows a giant gourd. When the storm starts, she hops into the gourd and is saved from the flood. Then, of course, there's also Deucalion, the Greek Noah. In uh, the Prose Edda, one of our sources for Norse mythology, we're told of the frost giant Noah, which, whatever else we can say about the frost giant Noah, we can definitely say that a frost giant Noah is cooler than a human Noah. Am I right? <laughs> then, of course, there is the um, Native American tale where two humans are told to climb into a boat made out of a hollow log to survive the flood. And one of my personal favorites is the Incan tale where two weeping llamas warn a couple of shepherds that a flood is coming and that they should seek higher ground. Now, this is just skimming the surface here, but you end up with a whole lot of sole survivors of a worldwide flood. But that's not the only way the gods like to wipe out humanity. Some of them get a bit more creative. There's the story of Sekhmet from ancient Egypt. And Sekhmet, who's apparently Hello Kitty here, um, <laughs> Sekhmet was created by the sun god Ra because humanity upset him by making fun of him for getting old. So he creates this kitty-headed goddess and sends her to literally tear humans apart. Not wipe them out with a flood, nice hands-free kind of approach. No, he sends a terrible beast after them to tear humans apart limb from limb. And it works out pretty well until it gets a little bit too much and the gods are like, eh, maybe we should back off now, okay? Even the gods have their limit of how much blood flow they can watch. But the only way they can stop her is by getting her drunk on blood-colored beer. Essentially what they do is slip her a roofie. They get her drunk, she passes out, 
And the next morning, she wakes up as an all-new goddess. She becomes the cow-headed goddess Hathor, who is a kinder, gentler love goddess. It's a way of telling us that there are better ways to solve our problems than bloodshed. From now on, we don't have the fierce kitten of Sekhmet. We have this loving, beautiful goddess of Hathor. Now that lesson, that idea that you don't always have to kill the people you don't like is still one we're really struggling with here. But hopefully one of these days we will get caught up on that. Now, the trajectory of the Sekhmet Hathor story is not one I can really recommend. Now, granted, getting blackout drunk can often have real effects on your life. You wake up the next day and you can really reevaluate things. But it's not necessarily the best way at turning your life around. If it works, it works. More power to you. But I don't necessarily recommend it. What we do get in mythology, though, are a number of stories that reflect a very positive approach to redemption. Uh, One that, by the way, does not come up in the Bible. Yeah, there are plenty of myths about demigods or animals being sacrificed in order to make up for the sins or wrongdoings of others. But these stories teach us that there's another way for redemption. You can actually redeem yourself sometimes. First, there's the tale of the monkey king. This comes from the Chinese uh, story of the journey into the West. And the monkey king is a figure with one of the most dramatic character arcs in literature. When he starts off, he uh, starts a coup against heaven itself. He fist fights the Buddha. There are not many people who can make that claim, right? Now, of course, this is not traditional Buddhism, and it's certainly not the Buddhism you're likely to hear about, what, in a couple of weeks there's a Buddhist uh, priest coming here? You're not likely to hear about this kind of Buddhism. But in this story, Buddha changes his fist into a mountain and slams it down on the monkey king. That is a badass Buddha right there. He pins the monkey king under this mountain halfway out so that he can still suffer for a while. And he's stuck there literally for centuries. Eventually, a group of pilgrims who are heading into the West, hence the title Journey into the West, to retrieve the original sutras of Buddha. And they see this monkey king and they think, hmm, this would be a good enforcer for us. This would be a good tough man to have around to help us out with the threats we face. So they take him out. And by the end of the story, they've gone back into Tibet, retrieved the sutras, By the end of the story, this guy who tried to punch Buddha in the face becomes enlightened himself. The monkey king becomes a Buddha. This would be like if the Bible ended with Satan and Jesus sitting down under the Bodhi tree, drinking a couple of beers and discussing philosophy. This is unheard of in Christianity. This idea that you can go from being a Buddha puncher to being a Buddha yourself. Then there's the tale of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is one of my personal favorites. 
He's a king uh, made, handcrafted by the gods themselves. But he's also kind of an a-hole. And by a-hole, I mean he rapes any woman he wants to, and he disrespects all of the elders in his town. Now, the sad part is, in ancient Mesopotamia, the, la or the latter is the worst offense. Raping women, mm, that's rude. But mocking your elders, we don't cotton to that kind of stuff. So he's such a bad king that his people pray to the gods to send someone to kill him. Now, eventually, um, he becomes best friends with this person who was sent to kill him. And then he loses this best friend to a slow, painful death. And when that happens, Gilgamesh's fears of immortality kick into high gear. He says, death is not this glorious thing. Death is scary. I'm going to find a way to make sure it never happens to me. So he goes off and looks for a way to become immortal. And he fails again and again and again. And it's only at the, at, after failing all these times that he realizes that true immortality does not come from not dying. Immortality comes from being remembered for what you did in life. So he changes his ways. He becomes a good king. He lives a long and prosperous life. And his people love him so much when he dies that all of them mourn him. And his name is remembered even to this day. There is a chance to turn your life around without accepting the Jesus. Another great story from Japanese mythology is the story of the storm god Susano. He too, like the Monkey King, revolts against heaven. Here he attempts to overthrow his sister, Amaterasu, the sun goddess. And his attempt is a little bit juvenile. Uh, a couple of the things he does include tearing the roof off her temple and pooping into it. But then the straw that really breaks the camel's back is when he throws a filleted horse into her sewing room. Now these... Nasty little tricks of his almost lead to the death of everything on earth. So the other gods toss him out. They tear out his toenails and they shave his head, which if you've seen Seven Samurai, you know is a huge sign of disrespect in Japanese culture. So then Susano is forced to walk the earth like Cain in Kung Fu. And he becomes something of a traveling hero. He goes around and even saves a princess, and slays a dragon. And that story is going to show up a lot. And if I were Joseph Campbell, I would say, ah, they're all the same story, right? The monomyth. But to me, the differences are always the more interesting part than the similarities. In Susano's story, he saves a princess by turning her into a comb and hiding her in his hair, Afropic style, I suppose. And then he slays the, the, this eight-headed dragon by getting him drunk on silo-sized vats of sake. And then when the eight-headed dragon passes out from drinking all the sake, he chops off all the heads, cuts open its belly, and finds a magic sword inside, as you would expect. <laughs> now, through his various good deeds, Susano 
eventually regains godhood and becomes a very respected figure. But perhaps my favorite story of redemption, and really the most humanistic story, comes not too surprisingly from the Greeks. Sorry about that. It's the story of Achilles. And those of you who are familiar with the Iliad know that the Iliad is, in fact, not the story of the Trojan War, as most people like to think. The Iliad is about something else entirely. Here are the opening lines of the Iliad. I know it's Greek to me, too. <laughs> Just soak that one in for a second. <laughs> Here's the translation by Robert Fitzgerald. Homer starts off by invoking the muse, or the immortal one, as it's here. It says, anger be now your song, immortal one. Achilles' anger. Achilles' anger is what this poem is about. But this translation doesn't really do it justice because the word that Homer uses for anger is the word that's normally reserved for the rage of the gods. This is not a human level of anger. This is not Brad Pitt in the movie Troy being kind of ticked off. This is god-like rage. And it's, of course, a huge and winding tale full of really silly stuff from the Greek gods who end up looking like uh, kind of a, a crappy reality show in a lot of ways. What's it like when 12 gods live together and stop being polite, start being real? And of course they sleep with each other and all. You know, it's, it's, the stuff with the gods is very incidental to the story of the Iliad. It's not the important part. But Achilles' trajectory, he goes from having the rage of the gods to at the end, after having defeated Hector, the hero of Troy, Hector's father comes to him in his tent on his knees and says to Achilles, please may I have my son's body back so that we can bury him. And Achilles does an incredibly human thing. He shows mercy. He says, yes. Not only will I wash the body of your son that I've so badly desecrated, but I will give you and your people the proper time to mourn him, and you can be assured that you will be safe from any kind of strike on our side. He goes from godlike rage to very human mercy. It really is a wonderful story, and one that I would argue is much more valuable than any god or demigod dying in order to make up for what you did. Now, there's a few more lessons here that uh, I'd like to touch on. One that I include just because I like Norse mythology so very much. My daughter is named Valkyrie, so it's kind of a thing around our house. But one of my favorite stories from Norse mythology is one of their darker stories. And the cool thing about Norse mythology, and really why I like it so much, is it combines this real dark grittiness with just plain silliness 
I mean, we're talking about Thor cross-dressing, and there's a story where um, a god and goddess are caught, uh, brother and sister are caught sleeping with each other, and they're so, so surprised that she farts, okay? These are the Norse myths, okay? But also, throughout all of these stories is the constant refrain that it's all going to end. It's going to end with the great battle of Ragnarok, the doom of the gods. And one of the stories that sets us up for Ragnarok is the story of the death of Baldur. Now, Baldur is known as Baldur the Beautiful. Um, he's the god of light, beauty, joy, innocence, reconciliation. I mean, you could not give him more nice things to be the god of. But, of course, there's one guy who doesn't like him, and that is the trickster god, Loki. Baldur's mother, Frigg, which is, by the way, the, the god who gives us Friday. Friday is Frigg's day, so TGAI Frigg's day in a couple of days. Um, Frigg has a dream that something bad is going to happen to Baldur. So as a dutiful mother, she goes out into the world and asks everything, everything, not just every person, not just every animal, but water and air and steam, which is water and air combined. Anyway, she asks everything to swear an oath to not hurt Baldur, which essentially makes him invincible. One of the favorite pastimes of the gods is to throw stuff at Baldur, knowing that it's not going to hurt him. Let's face it, if you were friends with Superman, you would do the same thing, right? Hey, Superman, boom, boom, boom. Eh. I love watching the bullets ricochet. So the gods have this game of, of throwing stuff at Baldur. But there's one god who doesn't get to join in. The blind god of night, Hod. He's always kind of left out because he's blind and they don't trust him with pointy objects. So Loki, the one thing in the world that doesn't like Baldur, disguises himself as an old woman and goes to Frigg one day and says, so is there really nothing that can hurt Baldur? And Frigg says, no, absolutely nothing in the world that can hurt Baldur. Well, and Loki says, is there anything that didn't make the promise not to hurt Baldur? And Frigg says, well, old lady, whose disguise I somehow can't see through even though I can see the future, um, yeah, okay, one thing, mistletoe. You know, the cute little plant, the kiss under, all that. It was like, it's such a little thing, what's it going to do? So I didn't bother asking it to pledge not to hurt Baldur. Boom, Loki disappears. Short while later, Loki cuddles up to Hod and says, Hey, blind buddy, what's going on? Hod says, eh. And he'll get to play in their reindeer games. I'm just kind of sitting here. And Loki says, that, you know what, that sucks. Here, I have got a special arrow for you. I will load it up, and I will get you pointed in the right direction, and then you can fire it, and you can join in on the fun. So Loki sets him up with, of course, a mistletoe-tipped arrow, points hard at Baldur, and he lets fly. Boom, Baldur drops to the ground. And, of course, the Norse gods being rational sorts of people, immediately kill Hod before he can say a word. So Baldur is dead, Hod is dead, 
the messenger of the gods, Hermod, is sent to hell, that's H-E-L, not H-E-L-L, um, to retrieve Balder. Not so much Hod. Him they could do without. Goes to retrieve Balder, and uh, Hel, the goddess who presides over Hel, says, I can give you him back if everything in the world mourns for Balder. No problem. This is great news. Everyone loves Balder. He's like Raymond, only more so. Everyone loves him, so it's not going to be a problem to get everyone to mourn. Everything in the world mourns for Balder, except one old lady, who is, of course, Loki in disguise. So the world is deprived, yet again, of this god of light and joy and puppy dogs and all of that good stuff. I don't really have a moral for this story. I just like it. Here's an important moral to keep in mind. There's more than one way to win a war. This relates to the story of the Egyptian gods Set or Seth and Horus. And one of the mistakes people make when thinking about mythology is this idea of, okay, so these stories, this is mythology. Well, when you get into especially a culture like Egypt that spanned a large space and a huge expanse of time, we're talking the 4,000 miles of the Nile River, we're talking 4,000 years of time, there's a lot of different versions of these stories. And this is one of those stories where there's some radically different versions. In one version, Seth and Horus are at war for supremacy in Egypt. Now, Seth is the evil god of the desert. Horus is the good sky god. So, of course, we're kind of pulling for Horus here. Seth killed Horus's father, Osiris, which is why there's even a question about who's in charge here. And the two sides are at war for a long time, probably representative of a real civil war that took place in ancient Egypt. And the gods get kind of sick of it. So they decide to hold a trial. They all get together and cast a vote as to who they think should win. And it ends up deadlocked. So what they do is give the deciding vote to the god of the underworld, Osiris, the guy who was killed by Seth and is the father of Horus. How do you think he's going to vote in this instance? Pretty crafty way of uh, Horace's team to win that out. It's like having a Supreme Court that is biased in your direction when you're trying to count votes in a state, say, Florida or something. So Osiris, not that I'm still bitter about that or anything. It's only, only been 12 years. Um, the memory is fresh. Um, but uh, so, of course, Osiris sides with Horus. Seth doesn't like this, so he keeps on fighting. The battle gets very bloody. Um, at one point, Horus castrates, or I'm sorry, yeah, Horus castrates Seth. Seth cuts out one of Horus's eyes, which is nicely repaired by his mother, who's a goddess of healing. But eventually, it ends up where the two of them do a contest to see who can stay underwater in the form of a hippo for longer. 
perfectly rational way to solve it, right? Would have worked great in 2000, because Al Gore makes a great hippo. He is, he's very good at the shape-shifting. So they do this, but uh, Horace's mother gets a little antsy and tries to kill Seth, but accidentally hurts her own son in the process. Long story short, well, long story slightly shorter, eventually they take out um, Seth when Osiris says, hey, you know what, guys? If you don't let my son be in charge, I'm going to send all of the demons from the underworld to mess things up. And they're like, okay, well, all right. Deal's over. Seth, shut up. Go be the god of the desert. So that's what he does. Now, there's another version of the story of Seth versus Horus, which gets into prison politics, shall we say. And this is the part where the small children in the room might want to put on the old earmuffs. I'll try to sanitize it as much as possible. Seth and Horus are at war for a long time. Finally, Seth says to Horus, you know what? This is silly. Come on over to my house. Spend the weekend. We'll work out a deal and have this all done with. So Horus says, okay, but he's no dummy. Okay? He knows that something is probably up. So the first night, Horus lays in his bed in Seth's palace, and Seth sneaks in overnight to rape him. Horus, again being fairly clever, puts his hands behind his back before Seth is able to penetrate him. So Seth then rapes his hands, which not a great solution either, but better than the alternative. Then Horus runs off to his mother, Isis, with a handful of Seth, <laughs> says, Mommy, 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 look what Uncle Seth did, which is the responsible thing to do. Um, what can we do? And Isis's first response, also the responsible thing to do, is she chops off his hands and she tosses it into the Nile. Now, Isis is a goddess of healing, no big deal, whoop, grows the hand right back, okay? And Horus says, okay, clearly Seth is willing to do anything to win this war. He tried to rape me. So how do we beat him? And Isis says to her son Horus, what's Seth's favorite food? And Horus says, well, of course, cabbage, we all know that. Seth loves cabbage. Every morning he gets up and eats a field of cabbage. And Isis goes, hmm. So the next morning, Seth gets up and he's feeling great because in his mind, he has won this war. So he goes out, he eats his field of cabbage, and then he calls a press conference. He gets Horace and he gets all of the people together and says, all right, everybody, we have an announcement to make. The war is over and I won. And everyone's like, how did this happen? What, what's going on here? And Seth says, yeah, uh, last night I dominated Horus. And they're like, what? Prove it. So Seth, rather than going to Mori Povich, <laughs> Seth calls to his semen. Again, like you would so that they will respond back. Now, of course, Seth is expecting th them to respond back from somewhere in Horus's colon, right? But instead, they respond from the Nile. 
And everyone is like, uh, shenanigans? What do you mean? I mean, we can all do that. Most of us do. Okay? This is, you haven't beaten anyone here. And Horace goes, okay, well, let me give it a try. So Horace calls out to his semen, and where do they respond from? Somewhere between Seth's throat and his stomach, because he has concocted some very special salad dressing for Seth to consume. Again, not the most practical way to win a war, necessarily, but wouldn't it be nice if it were that easy? Rather than thousands of people dying, it's not pleasant, but it ain't the worst thing in the world either, right? <laughs> yeah, well, clearly, uh, clearly we spoke to you. Um, <laughs> or the best. Um, now, just to end on a, a less horrible note, a couple of positive lessons here. Because so many of the myths out there are, are pretty damning to women. Not that it's their fault, but hey, they're women. They have vaginas. I said it again. So, you know, they're evil and icky and all that. So I wanted to include at least one really positive myth about a woman. And this comes from right here in the United States, long before it was the United States, from the Ogala Sioux tribe. The story goes that a couple of scouts were out scouting, presumably, that's what they do, and they saw a beautiful woman wearing a white buckskin dress. And one of the scouts immediately thought, hmm, I want to rape her. It, it gets better. The other scout recognized her divinity and said, oh, no, 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 not, not a good idea, okay? Don't do that. But this woman could read the scout's mind and knew what his intentions were. So when he approached her, she opened her arms to embrace him. When, she, when he embraced her, this mist appeared and swirled around them. When the mist dissipated, she was revealed in all her glory, and the scout's glistening skeleton clattered to the ground. Good one, ladies, right? <laughs> So then she says to the other scout, the respectful scout, she says, go back to your people and tell them to build a special teepee for me, and when it's done, I'll come over. So they do that. They build this extra-large teepee, and she appears. And then she sits with the chief and teaches all sorts of things, how to use a pipe, reason enough to worship her, I would say, um, as well as a lot of the sacred rites of the Ogala Sioux, including... Um, uh, rituals for vision quests, the sun dance, puberty rites for girls, and so on and so forth. And after she has bestowed this wisdom to them, wisdom which to this day, to one extent or another, they still follow, she turned into a white buffalo, hence the name White Buffalo Woman, and walked off into the sunset. Now, a lot of times we don't give Native American mythology enough credit, partly because, unlike the Greeks who wrote a ton, Native American mythology hasn't been written down until quite recently, relatively speaking, say the, what, late 1800s. But there's one other part of the world that's been treated even less fairly, 
and that is, of course, the dark continent of Africa. African myths were not written down until often the 1950s or so. The 19, do you remember the 1900s? I was there, okay? Less than 100 years ago, people started finally writing down the myths of these cultures that had existed literally since the beginning of humanity. And why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, if you're going to enslave them, it's a lot easier to do if you ignore their culture. Because if you go, oh, these guys have a rich culture, well, better go whip them. It doesn't work. There's a lot more cognitive dissonance. But if you go, oh, they're just heathen, dirt worshiping, blah, 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 all of that, it's much easier to enslave them. So really, until after the Civil War, no one gave a crap about African culture. And really, until the, the mid-1900s, no one really put much effort into recording it. Now, one of the best stories from Africa, in my opinion, comes from uh, Zaire, and it's the story of the hero Mwindo. And if I were to tell you the whole story of Mwindo, it would take 12 days. Yeah. If you've got the time, no, okay. Uh, it's a huge poem, and it's, of course, since it's Africa, it's largely oral tradition, so it's performed in a 12-day ritual. They perform this entire story. And there is a lot of really amazing and bizarre stuff in it. Mawindo is born, and before he's a day old, there are three attempts on his life. At one point, baby Mawindo crawls out of the grave made of dirt and bananas. There's a weird obsession with bananas in this story, too. Um, his father tries to kill him several times. His uncle tries to kill him. He ends up going into the underworld and beating up the god of the underworld so badly that he knocks the inner organs out of him. And then he kills him, and then he resurrects him, and then he kills him again. All of this, by the way, his weapon is a conga. A conga. Yeah, Josh appreciates that. Love our drum circles, right? You never knew they could be so dangerous. So, and then um, after that, he reunites with his father. They forgive each other, even though he tried to kill him as a baby. He becomes the leader of his tribe. Um, he kills a dragon. And in killing the dragon, offends heaven. That's the thing he does that causes the problem. So, the punishment for having killed this dragon, who's a friend of the gods is he is sent to walk around heaven for a year, which sounds nice, right? Because you're probably thinking of heaven as Care Bear land, right? White fluffy clouds and angels and harps and all that crap, okay? Not here. Here, heaven is, is an exposed area. So he is pelted by rain. The sun burns his hair. The stars, and this is my favorite part, lecture him on his personal shortcomings. <laughs> You're arrogant, sir. For a year, he wanders around heaven and gets lectured and gets pelted. When he comes back, he comes back with a list of rules, a list of commandments, maybe we should say, given to him by the gods. And this is a list of commandments that I would not have a problem with seeing in our courthouses. Here are some of the rules. Stop killing animals. 
Those of you who eat meat, maybe a hard one to sell you on. But stop killing animals. Live harmoniously. Live in beautiful homes. Avoid arguments. Be compassionate to everyone and accept them no matter what your difference is. Never give favor to one group over another. How much different would our country be if there were people claiming, we were founded on the principles of Mwindo. Accept each other, no matter how different they are from you. Love everyone. Don't favor anyone, but love everyone equally. How fantastic would that be? So as you can see, there are many of different lessons we can learn from mythology. Some of them very practical. Be careful when you eat lettuce, for example. <laughs> Some of them that reveal truths about our history. Some that reveal truths about our current um, political problems. But unless you get to know these stories, unless you experience these tales, you are missing out. Even if you don't believe in any of these gods, there are so very many of them worth not believing in. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>